Testament is customary not for bells to be rung, but for trumpets to be blown before the word of the Lord was to be decreed. And the reason is because this sound would call people's minds and hearts to pay attention to what God was about to declare to his people. In Sunday school, we've been reading through the and studying through the book of Deuteronomy, which if you don't know, the word Deuteronomy means second law. In Exodus chapter 20, the Lord gave his chosen people, the Israelites, ten commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses repeated those ten commandments as well as explained what God would require of his people as they lived in loving obedience in relationship with him. On Sunday mornings, for the next few weeks, as well as Sunday nights, we're going to be looking at the higher law that Jesus gave in his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Here Jesus quoted several times from the book of Deuteronomy, referenced at least six times from the book of Deuteronomy by saying, you've heard it said, or it is written. And then he would go on to explain to these people who knew the book of Deuteronomy, who knew this Old Testament law, that they were to live in right relationship with God, not just by fulfilling the letter of the law on the page, but by following the heart of the law in their own hearts. This morning we're going to look at this idea that Jesus presents of being reconciled in personal relationships. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Jesus is preaching and he shares these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his, his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law, while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Jesus' higher law is that we be reconciled in our personal relationships. Jesus quoted or referenced two commands from the Old Testament. The first is what we call the sixth commandment. It's actually there in Exodus chapter 20 and also in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 17. That verse simply says, you shall not murder. 
And so it might have been easy for people to think, well, I hadn't killed anybody. I might be as mad as a hornet's nest at him, but I haven't killed him, so I'm okay. In fact, God didn't just give the command not to murder, but he also told his people what would occur if a murder did happen. Jesus was uh, referencing another uh, scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, whoever commits murder will be liable or guilty before the court. A court in the Old Testament was a little bit different from how we have our courts set up in our nation. Elders and judges would be appointed in every city throughout the, the land of Israel. And these elders, these judges, would sit at the city gate where people would go in and come out. So if you did something wrong, you couldn't leave. And if you did something wrong somewhere else, you, you couldn't come in until there was an examination that had taken place. These elders and these judges would hear cases. They would seek the Lord's wisdom, they would call for witnesses, they would examine evidence, and then they would make a ruling based upon the facts that they were presented. If you murdered somebody, the Old Testament law's punishment was if you had killed another person, voluntarily committing murder, then you yourself would be executed. Vengeance would be taken. And this was not out of malice from a personal standpoint. This wasn't a, a vendetta that somebody was going after. You killed my brother, so I'm going to kill you. This was God's way of punishing people who had evil and violence in their hearts. In fact, a person couldn't just say, you killed my brother, I'm going to kill you. They actually had to be given a trial, set before the judges. And if they had murdered, then an execution would follow. The Lord told his people why throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he didn't want these murders to continue occurring and taking place. God told his people Israel that when they murdered each other and blood was shed, that it polluted the land. Not in an environmental sense that we would think of pollution today, you know, with aerosol spray cans going up in the air, but the Lord knew when a person's blood had been spilled and shed out of hatred and malice. In fact, something interesting to think about as we work through this passage and where Jesus is preaching is back all the way in the book of Genesis before the second law, Deuteronomy, had ever been given or before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 had ever been declared from the Lord. You remember Adam and Eve, the first two that God had made, had disobeyed the Lord. God told them that they could eat from any of the trees of the Garden of Eden that he had planted except for one. You know what Adam and Eve did, right? You remember the story. They ate from the one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. Well, Adam and Eve had children. Cain and Abel were two of their names that we find out from the book of Genesis. And Cain and Abel came to this point as brothers when one of them, Abel, had offered a sacrifice in faith to God and Cain had not offered a pleasing sacrifice to God. And just like brothers always do, there was a conflict that arose. And this conflict ended with a pretty serious sin. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. And so he took Abel out into a field and he killed his brother Abel. You ever heard this story before? Some of you remember this from Sunday school class growing up? And Cain left his brother Abel with his bloodshed out there in the field. And then goes back, goes back you know, 
to his house, goes back to his own fields about his business. And God knows what Cain's done, and he comes to Cain and he says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Cain says, how am I supposed to know? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his shepherd? Abel was a shepherd of the flocks. He took care of the sheep. And Cain's like, he's not an animal. I'm not his zookeeper. You know, why are you asking me? And the Lord knew the whole time what had happened. He saw the murder transpire. He saw the event take place. And the Lord asked Cain this, this question, really made this declaration. Cain, do you not know? That the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. God saw what had taken place when Cain killed, murdered his brother Abel. This wasn't the only time that a murder would be committed. In fact, if you keep reading in the book of Genesis, it gets to the point where God tells Noah, this man who finds grace in his eyes... That the heart of man, that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That there is so much killing and violence on the face of the earth that God is actually sorrowful that he has made human beings in his image. And so what God would do was send a flood to wipe out humanity except for Noah and his family and would keep him alive. And the first thing that happens when Noah gets out of the ark and offers a sacrifice to God and and the Lord promises never to flood the earth again, the Lord gave Noah a command. And it was this, Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. The reason that Jesus begins to flesh out this idea of a higher law with the commandment, do not murder, is because this hatred and violence and evil intent in the heart of people is as old as, as humanity itself. After Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, Cain killed his brother Abel, murdered him there in the field. And God saw all of that take place, saw all of that transpire. This is why Jesus refers to these two commands. God was serious about not taking another human life out of hatred. He sees it transpire every time. Even if a judge or a police officer is not there in our day and time to see a murder take place, God sees it, and it hurts his heart, and it grieves his soul every time it takes place. But Jesus does something different here with the people to whom he's teaching. These are his followers, his disciples he's teaching, not just the twelve that he had called special to set aside, but a group of people. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is preaching a sermon from a mountainside. There's people gathered around there. It kind of worked as a you know, natural amphitheater. The speaker would go up a little higher on the mountain and he would sit there and then the others would gather around listening to this person teach as the sound would echo off of the rocks around. And as Jesus is teaching, he presents a truth that pierces the heart of every person in that audience. You know, because... We might be tempted as people to recite that sixth commandment, do not murder. And we go, well, you know what? I think, I think I'm okay here. I had never killed anybody. I mean, I, I hadn't taken my brother out into a field, although I, when I was younger, I probably wanted to do this if I was honest with myself. I hadn't taken my brother out into a field and beat his head with a rock. 
and killed him? I haven't, in the malice and evil of my heart, gone out and taken another human life. For those who haven't murdered, they, they might have the idea in their mind, I'm okay. I have not killed anybody. But Jesus presents a piercing truth. He says, look, it's not just that the Father in heaven sees the action of murder take place. It's also that the Father in heaven sees the attitude of your heart when you wish you could kill somebody, but you don't. In fact, I'm going to do something a little bit dangerous. But I'm going to do it anyways. How many of you have ever thought in your mind or even verbalized the expression, even if you would say, I didn't really mean it? How many of you have ever said or thought something, man, I, I'm going to kill them? How many of you ever said that about your own kids, right? Look, we've all done this. I mean, we have. And we might say, I, I, I didn't mean it. But Jesus says, there are some attitudes and some, some actions that every one of you hold and that every one of you have had that point to the fact that the same hatred that is in the heart of a murderer is the same hatred at many times that's in your own heart. Here, here's the first attitude that Jesus gives. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, I, I need you to understand this. There are times when the Bible uses the word anger to express a, a righteous indignation against sin, against something wrong that has taken place. There, there are times that God himself is described as holding this righteous type of wrath against sin and those who have committed gross atrocities in his eyes. But then there's another sense in which the Bible uses this word anger, and it's an anger that produces sin. You know, you can be angry and still not sin. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be angry, yet do not sin. Jesus had a righteous anger when he came into the temple and he flipped over the tables because people had made his father's house a house of business instead of a house of prayer. But the type of anger that Jesus is talking about here in verse 22 is not a righteous anger, it's an unholy anger. It's an anger that says, I'm not just upset about what you've done, and I'm not just mad that something wrong has taken place. It's an anger that is rooted in a hatred for and towards another person. Everyone who is angry with his brother, not just to his brother, not just about what his brother has done, but is angry with his brother, shall be guilty before the court. This is an attitude that Jesus says you ought not have. The same thing that a murderer has in his heart when he kills someone else is the same attitude that we ourselves have had in our own hearts, whether we've killed anybody or not. When we become so angry, so upset with somebody that we wish they didn't exist, then that they have to be involved in our life. There's a problem there. You see it? And we hold on to that, and we excuse it sometimes too. You know, it's like, well, I'll forgive them, but I won't forget what they did. You know? Or it, it's a, oh man, if I could just get a hold of them right now. And then Jesus 
goes on to, to talk about two more actions that, that take place. Uh, he says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. All right? in, the, in the Greek, it's a word raka. It was a common expression. You know, it was kind of an insult. You know, raka. You know, pe- people would shake their fist at somebody else. Some of your English translations will use the words empty-headed or you good for nothing. Right? Um, I was kind of convicted of this studying it this week. We use a, a different word a lot of times in, in our culture, in our context. You ever heard somebody called a knucklehead before? Or ever called somebody a knucklehead? You know why they, they use the term knucklehead? Just take your hand right here. Just knock real hard on your skull. And if it sounds empty, you're a knucklehead. That's, that's, why we, that's where we get this phrase from, this, this expression. Um, there have been many times that I have called my boys at home knuckleheads because sometimes it's just like what are you thinking there can't be a brain up there to start with for you to have done something like that when Jesus says whoever says to his brother you good for nothing raka you empty-headed you knucklehead he shall be guilty before the supreme court what Jesus is really pointing to is the fact that if you verbally express in words that somebody is stupid, then you really don't have their best interests at heart in your own heart. And listen to me, I love my kids, I really do. But I am frustrated by my kids many days at home. I love you as a a church, as fellow followers of Jesus Christ. But I'll be honest with you, there's some days I'm frustrated with you. You love me as a pastor, some days you're frustrated with me, aren't there? Look, we love each other as husbands and wives, as spouses in our own families. But there's times we're frustrated with each other. You, you love your grandkids, but there's times you're frustrated with your grandkids. You love your friends, your coworkers, the people on your team, but there's sometimes you're frustrated with them. And sometimes you express with your words something that you really probably shouldn't say, but it just becomes a common expression over time that we think is acceptable, Right? So knucklehead might not be your choice of phrase. But what do you say about somebody when they've done something or said something you don't like? What do you call them? How do you identify them or describe them in your head? For some, you know, for some of you super spiritual people, you might just call them a goofball. Right? For some of you rednecks that grew up in the South, you might use a whole lot of more colorful language, right? But there's something that you have in mind. You call them something. You even say it out loud many times. Jesus isn't just saying that speaking the words itself is the problem. He's saying speaking the words reveals an attitude in your heart that's present. In fact, Jesus talks about some of this colorful language as he goes on here and says, Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell now once again Jesus isn't just saying if you've ever said somebody is a fool and just use that language that you're going to go to hell for eternity right this is not what he intends this is not what he means in his teaching rather he intends if you're saying the words knucklehead or fool then you're showing that you're harboring hatred in your heart A hatred that is sinful, that's expressed in our words. 
expressed about others and to others. And it displays the attitudes we hold in our hearts that are not attitudes of love for the people around us. In fact, Jesus himself would call people fools throughout his preaching time. The Bible calls people a fool. Rather, what Jesus is talking about when he says to somebody, you fool, is it that moment in time when you have that big confrontation with your friend? You know, maybe it's a blow up in high school because she was dating some guy that you liked and you got really jealous and you started yelling at her. Or it's that time when, you, when your son has just, man, he, he's crossed the line for the 15th time and you can't take it anymore. And so instead of trying to talk about it, or instead of trying to ask questions, or instead of trying to think through this and to help them through it, you're done with them. And so what you say is, you fool! Basically, an equivalent of what Jesus is talking about would be expressed in our language. Damn you. You get what Jesus is saying? I hate using that type of language, but this is what Jesus is talking about. And look, there are times when we find ourselves in a situation with somebody else. And this is what's really sad. We're almost wishing that God would judge them eternally for the wrong that they've done and that they would spend eternity separated from him in hell because we're through with this relationship. This is the type of hatred Jesus is talking about. In fact, I would say, man, that's, that's like committing murder, isn't it? In fact, in some sense, worse. If we were wishing that somebody was eternally cut off from the grace of God. In fact, this is why Jesus uses such strong language in talking about how why people would be guilty for calling others a fool. If your attitude is one in which you wish, you think, that somebody is just so far removed from God's grace and you're so upset with them over something they've done to you or said to you that they deserve to spend eternity in hell, Jesus said, you need to watch out because you might be guilty of harboring the hatred in your heart that is there as a result of unforgiveness of your own sins. So what does Jesus say we we ought to do if this is the case? Because if we're honest with ourselves, there is no one who lives up to this higher law, right? I mean, there's some of us in this room who, who could say, I've never committed murder before. There's some of us in this room that maybe that could even say, you know, I've never wished that somebody was damned to hell for eternity because of what they said or done to me. But all of us have had a point, most of us several points, when there's been hatred in our heart towards somebody else, what do we do? Jesus presents two scenarios. This, here's what he recommends. In the first, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, right? And so let's just paint the picture because their worship in this day and time was a little bit different from the way that we worship God, right? Uh, God still expected them to worship him with their hearts. But these people would bring animals to sacrifice there on the altar. So maybe as a person was coming to present his lamb to be offered up there on the altar at the temple, God puts on his mind this confrontation that he had with a fellow businessman two weeks before. This businessman had 
defrauded him. And instead of working out a solution to this issue, you decided, you know what? I'm tired of this guy. Maybe, maybe I'm going to take him before the judges in the gate and really punish him and make him look, look like a fool in front of all of these elders in the city. In fact, I hate this guy. Maybe you've been praying that God would bring judgment into his life even for what he had done to you. And all of a sudden, God reveals to this worshiper in their heart, hey, you're about to sacrifice a lamb for your own sins. But listen, before you sacrifice this lamb for, uh, for your sins, you really need to think about what you're doing here in worship. Offering this lamb on the altar is not going to make the hatred for your brother that's in your heart just magically disappear. In fact, if you really want forgiveness for your sins, you probably need to go ask so-and-so to forgive you about what you said about them, about what you've done to them, or about what you're thinking towards them. Jesus says, man, if this is the case, you remember your brother has something against you, just leave your lamb there. Before you worship, in other words... Jesus says, before you worship the Lord and offer your offering on the altar, go to your brother first and be reconciled. Then come present your offering. Why would Jesus say that? Because he knew that people cannot truly love God while they hate their brother. You can't. Say, Jake, yeah. I don't know if, if you know my family situation. I don't know if you know what so-and-so said, what so-and-so did. I don't, but God does. And let me explain something to you real quickly. That same person you're mad at because of whatever they said to you or whatever they did to you is the same person for whom Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died upon the cross for their sins. So listen to me. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to learn how to forgive like Jesus. And this is where we really just get smacked in the face and pierced to the heart, isn't it? Because all of us have been hurt by somebody at some point. All of us have something against somebody at one point or another. And we've got to deal with that. And we don't deal with that just by having a fight with each other and punching each other in the face. That's for fifth and sixth grade boys. That's not for Christ followers. In fact, it's really not for Christ followers if you are a fifth and sixth grade boy, is it? We learn how to forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. In fact, this was the picture that this offering on the altar was to be presented. An innocent lamb was being slaughtered so that a guilty human being could be forgiven. There are times when we're going to have to kill and lay aside our attitudes and our actions that we would love to lash out in anger towards one another and extend God's forgiveness to them instead. In fact, Sometimes we don't have to just go and offer forgiveness. Sometimes we have to ask for forgiveness. Because sometimes it's, it's the other way around. Sometimes we're the businessman who hasn't done what is ethically honest. Sometimes we're the student 
who's cheated. Sometimes we're the teacher or the professor who said something in the classroom we shouldn't have. Sometimes we're the coach who didn't model an example in the ways that we're supposed to. Sometimes we're the parent who said something foolish in a moment of anger and frustration. And there's times we have to go and say, hey, will you forgive me? Here's what I did, and I know it. I'm sorry that I hurt you. Jesus gives a second scenario. He says, that verses 25-26, don't just uh, leave your offering, but, but make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way. In other words, if the two of you are walking to the gate where the elders and the judges are going to decide a matter of dispute between the two of you, make friends with this person who's mad at you or or your opponent may hand you over to the judge and a judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. But truly I say to you, you'll not come out of there until you've paid the last cent. Jesus says, look, if, if you've done wrong to somebody, it's time to go and ask for their forgiveness. If your brother has something against you, ask him for forgiveness. But if you've done something to offend someone else, you need to go and be reconciled to that person. Or else punishment is coming. And really in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is painting a very clear spiritual picture for us. God is the ultimate judge. Jesus is our opponent, and we are the wrongdoers. I mean, I want you to think about where every single person is headed. We have all done something wrong. Maybe we've hated another person. Maybe we've killed another person. Maybe we've lied. Maybe we've cheated. Maybe we've stolen. Whatever the case may be. And we are headed directly to judgment before a holy God in eternity. Do you know that? I mean, there's no way around it. And all the way there, there is someone walking alongside with us. And he's our opponent because he represents the Father in heaven, a perfect and loving heavenly Father who's never done any sin, never done anything wrong. And this companion traveling with us along this journey is himself hurt by what we've done because he's the son of the judge that we're going to face for eternity. Would you not stop before you get to the city gate and say, look, I know I've messed up. Look, I know that I've sinned. Look, I know that there's been hatred in my heart towards so-and-so. And I know you've seen it. And I know because of the hatred that's in my heart against another person that you've made, I'm at odds with you. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Because there's going to come a point for each and every one of us that we're going to die. Each and every one of us. We're going to face the day when we're no longer on this earth to apologize to people that we've hurt or to ask forgiveness for the wrong that we've done towards somebody else. And there's going to come a day when we stand before God in judgment. And at that point, the trial is there. It's too late to ask for forgiveness. But here and now is the time. 
that God has given us the opportunity to be reconciled to others around us and also to be reconciled to Him, Himself. No one lives up to the higher law Jesus presents in Matthew chapter 5. We need God's grace to be reconciled to Him. And when we're reconciled to Him, then we can be reconciled in our personal relationships towards others. Let me read you just a few verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. I just want you to listen to these verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled to him, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here, let me explain this in simple Jake and Ease. You ready? God has every right to be so angry with you that he could send you to hell for eternity because of what you've thought, said, and done. You might think that that's wrong, but God's a perfect judge, and you've broken his law. But here's reality. God does not want you to spend eternity in hell. In fact, he loves you enough to forgive you of what you've done. He's the one who could act in righteous anger and punish you forever. But he chooses in his compassion to give you the opportunity to be reconciled to him. In fact, he demonstrated this love when he sent his son Jesus to pay the price, the punishment, the penalty for our sins. And all we have to do is confess our sins to him and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we realize just how much God loves us and when we experience his forgiveness, then we're able to turn around to people we never thought it possible for us to forgive and we let the hatred and the anger and the wrath and the malice and the violence we want to do, we let it all go. Because we realize that we've been forgiven so much and that the same people who have hurt us need to experience God's forgiveness as well. And we extend forgiveness to them, hoping they experience the forgiveness of Christ. No one lives up to the higher law. We need God's grace to be reconciled to Him and to others. When you receive God's grace, Jesus Himself enables you and empowers you to do what you never said or never thought would be possible. You're able to forgive that father who abused you, the stepfather who abused you. You're able to forgive that mom who never wanted anything to do with you. You're able to forgive that friend that hurt you deeply in high school 25 years ago. You're able to forgive the co-worker that drives you nuts still every Monday morning when you walk into work. You're able to forgive your teammate who threw you under the bus in front of the coach. You're able to forgive the people that you're hating in your heart and you don't want to anymore. I'm going to ask you to do something a little different this morning. If 
If you've got a bulletin, I want you to pull out your bulletin. On your bulletin, there's a a little response card. And I'm just going to ask you to, to think through these questions and to ask the Lord to give you the wisdom to answer these questions honestly. If you don't have a bulletin, you can just listen to these questions and maybe pray through them. Whom have you hurt? Whom have you said something ugly to? Done something wrong to? Whom have you hurt? With whom are you angry? Maybe because they've hurt you. They've said something, done something, and you hate their guts. Who do you need to forgive? And maybe the biggest question of all, all of us are guilty before a holy God, but He wants to forgive us. And He can and He will if we'll confess our sins. Will you receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ? If you never have before, maybe today's the day that you say, God, I'm tired of living like this. I know I can't be a perfect person and I am mad as can be at everybody else who's not perfect either. But God, I want you to forgive me my sins so that I can live in a way that I forgive others and experience freedom from this burden I've been buried. Just over the next couple of moments, I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a hymn of invitation. Would you just work your way through this response card? Maybe check off one or two of those boxes. Maybe even write a person's name in there. And then later on, as the offering plates are passed, if you just, as, as an act of, God, I'm responding to you in love and obedience, maybe you just need to place that card in the offering plate. Maybe you just need to write it down. God, I've done something wrong to this person and I'm going to call them on the phone. Or I'm going to go to their house this afternoon and ask them to forgive me. God, I'm angry with so and so. But God, I want to confess my hateful attitude to, to you right now. Maybe somebody has hurt you and, and they know they've hurt you. In fact, they might have even asked you to forgive them and you've either never said anything in response or you've told them, no, I won't. Or maybe you're here today and this forgiveness and reconciliation thing is impossible for you because you've never been forgiven of your own sins. Maybe today you need to receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Take a few moments, pray through this as our musicians play. If you need to come down here and speak with me during this song, please do so. I'd be happy to pray with you or talk with you through anything. As God speaks to your heart today, will you